Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike and this episode is with Rich Goodwin. Rich is a former RAF Tornado GR1 pilot and he briefly chats about flying the jet as well as some stories from the Gulf War. But the main focus of the interview is his airshow display flying in the Pitts S2S. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. And also visit us at aircrewinterview.tv to watch all of our other interviews and sign up to our newsletter. Enjoy. So Rich, when did you first come to the uh, interest in aviation? Um, I guess it stems from uh, my father was in the Air Force and we were brought up surrounded by uh, lightnings. I think what really sticks in my mind is sitting on the uh, crash gate at RF Audition uh, back in the 70s and um, watching um, a lightning squadron scramble. Um, just all lined up at the end of the runway, opening up the power, 30 second stream, uh, taking off, getting uh, to the end of the runway, reheats on, reheating, a, rot- a rotation takeoff, they used to call it, and then just disappearing to the heavens. And, you know, you could just feel your heart and your body be part of that experience. Always and, impressive uh, sight. <laughs> yeah, always impressive sight. So Rich, when did you join the RAF? Uh, I joined the Air Force uh, uh, in 84, I had to think about that, um, on a short service commission, or, or the option was a, por- a permanent commission as well, and um, went through the standard officer training, um, basic flying training, advanced flying training, and uh, then was lucky enough to get uh, put onto the Tornado GR1, the ground attack version. Brilliant. So can you tell us a bit about your training on the Tornado? Uh, yeah, from what I can remember, um, well, well, there's two aspects to learning to fly the tornado. First, you have to learn to fly it as an aeroplane, which you, we used to do at the Tri-National Service Unit at uh, RAF Cottesmore, which is run by um, RAF, Italian Air Force, German Air Force, which is enlightening in itself. We had a lot of uh, X-104 pilots trying to teach us how to fly this thing. Um, first, you learn how to fly it as a, an aircraft, its handling characteristics. It's fairly minimal, the training they give you on it. And then you go uh, to the next step, which is learning to use it as a weapons platform, which you do at, uh, we did at RAF Honington. And from there you progress to a squadron, and I was sent to 9 Squadron in Germany. Um, we had uh, four Tornado Squadrons based in Germany at that point because of the Cold War threat. Um, although a lot of the aircraft have come back to UK now because there's no longer that threat. It's a different kind of threat. Yeah. So what was it like to fly? Um, well, well, I don't know really what to compare it with. I never flew the Jaguar or the Harrier, but uh, it was a very pleasant aircraft to fly, particularly at low level. Uh, the wing loading and its quietness and smoothness of ride uh, really gave you a lot of confidence um, when you're flying around the hills, low level, at uh, 200 feet or 100 feet, if it was uh, Operation Low Flying in uh, Canada and Goose Bay. Several large exercises, um, Goose Bay, Red Flag, Cold Lake, these are all exercises um, in uh, North America and, uh, um, and the West Coast of America. Um, talked to, uh, well, two aspects really. For operational low flying, the only place we could go and really fly 100 feet, uh, which was the way we used to exist when we had the Cold War, Cold War threat, um, and also do large-scale um, operations integrated with Americans, uh, fighter sweep, uh, electronic warfare, dropping live weapons, and these were done on the ranges out near Las Vegas um, at Red Flag. So how did the Americans view the tornado and the RAF? I think when the uh, tornado first came in, the Americans were a bit hacked off, possibly, because the uh, bombing results we used to get were quite good, um, particularly at low level. 
Um, but since new technology came in, then I think the Americans ever took a bit on the laser guided stuff. Yeah. These were all sort of uh, originally free for all iron bombs. World War II bombs with either a parachute strapped it or a, a loft attack yeah, um, impact points generated by computers. But then when the laser guided bombing came in, uh, which I didn't experience until the Gulf War, um, then things became a lot more accurate. So did you ever fly on operations? Uh, yeah, I, I flew in Operation Granby, Desert Storm. Um, so I went out to the Gulf uh, in the December 91, and the war started in, I think it's 13th of January. So originally the squadrons were being rotated, and then they suddenly decided they needed another squadron out there. So we were sent out uh, as part of, uh, I won't say leper colony, but uh, it was like... Um, 14, 9, 31 squadron, 17 squadron. We all went out and we were based at Dharan and we had like a two-week workup out flying, Operation Low Flying in the Desert. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, one afternoon, the boss said, right, that's it, and then we're flying. And we thought, oh, well, we haven't really done much practice yet. Loaded the weapons up and no one really knew what was going to happen until we woke up the next morning, Sky Television, and eight of our colleagues had been called in secretly to go and, you know, run the first wave uh, from Bahrain, from Dharan, and from Tabuk. So we had three squadrons operating out there, all part of the integrated package. Um, and the types of delivery, um, uh, war was a terrible thing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an awful thing to be involved with, although I was, I was proud to do what I was asked to do. Um, we were dropping um, loft attack, uh, low-level loft bombing. Um, on Iraqi airfields and then uh, we went to medium level bombing and then uh, high angle dive daylight bombing um, and uh, then laser guided bombs in conjunction with the Buccaneers but um, operations out there presented its uh, new challenges because um, I'll just wait for that to get past <laughs> yeah uh, operation out, operations out there presented new challenges for us Germany based squadrons because um, during the Cold War, we had no uh, necessity for air to refueling, and all operations out in uh, Desert Storm would require air to refueling. Typically, missions are about three, three and a half hours long, and so we all had to do literally a crash course in air to refueling. So, literally a few weeks before we went out uh, to theatre, um, the only tanker assets we had in the UK were based uh, in UK, uh, and we'd meet up over the North Sea have a very quick go at tanking and said right that, that's you signed off but um, there's a lot more to air to fueling than, uh, than than just a couple of sorties and then they said uh, right you've done that now now you've got to go and do it at night and none of us have done any <laughs> night formation so I, I might sort of think that we were a bit of a peacetime air force up until that point but yeah having trained for lots of different types of roles it, it wasn't too difficult to adapt to yeah. our new the new scenario that we needed to do so how long do you spend out there uh, the duration of the war. So I did 21 missions, 21 bombing missions out there, uh, which has meant flying every 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 few days really. Um, it started beginning of January. I think we came back in the spring sometime, um, which, which was yeah a, a good a, a good thing to fly one of the jets back. And I remember landing at uh, RAF Bruggen, um, and all the wives were out there. Had the RAF band. And being a bit cheesy, <laughs> I'd gone to a flower shop, bought some roses, and I had them in the back of my aeroplane. So when the canopy opened, uh, I, was, I, I was allowed to give my uh, wife a bunch of roses, which pissed off all the other pilots because they, <laughs> they hadn't thought about it. <laughs> so have you got any memorable stories you can share with us from your time? 
I, I guess the the hardest thing was and is just knowing whether you, you could actually you'd done all this training back in United Kingdom and you talked about enemies war being shot at but you, you'd never actually experienced it for the first time yourself and um, I think uh, what happens is a lot of people we've got we've got aircraft out in the Gulf at the moment in Syria and uh, the Middle East you know those guys are being shot at they're under real threat all the time and um, I don't think the general public really appreciate what our armed forces actually go and do day to day for us in order to keep world peace or, or try and maintain some sort of uh, civilised peace but um, yeah I've got a few stories um, <laughs> I think um, what, I think if, if I'm honest with myself one of my biggest fears would, was uh, possibly um, knowing whether I could actually strap into this jet with £5,000 bombs and uh, take off and go and do what we've been asked to do because until you've actually done it no, you, you don't really know how you're going to feel about it you can train all you like but um, I, 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 the, my first mission it was on the second or third night of the war and we were dropping uh, um, loft bombs from a low level attack and uh, we were an eight ship I think a couple went US on startup and we ended, eventually ended up as a six ship but the way we used to operate, we'd have one Victor, four tornadoes, um, two tornadoes in each wing, and you'd rotate um, through the tanker in order to get the fuel before you uh, dropped off the, to- the tanker tow line uh, down to low level. Um, it was the time of year where the intertropical convergence zone, which is um, a weather phenomena for that uh, around the world, but it just happened to be sitting um, around about the border between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And that produces a lot of convective activity and turbulence. And typically, um, the tanker tow line would be at about 15,000 feet. Um, but you need to do air-to-air fueling um, in visual conditions. Although, although it might be at night. Um, and in order to get uh, VMC outside some of these uh, cumulus cumulonimbus clouds uh, the tankers had to climb up to something like 20,000 feet I, I can't remember exactly um, but none of us had ever flown an aeroplane I, I dropped bombs in UK I dropped practice bombs I dropped 1,000 pounder but today I was flying with uh, two 20, uh, 2250 litre tanks and 5,000 pound bombs so the actual weight of the aircraft was the heaviest I've ever flown before this is my first ever uh, live bombing mission and so um, it, when the tankers started to climb up, we were flying the aeroplane in and out of Mac Buffett because normally a tank in, I think, uh, 45 wing, but maybe we had to go, or, or 33 wing, no, 20, yeah, 25 wing, 25 <laughs> wing, but we had to develop a technique to bring the, aer- the wing back so it wouldn't get into Mac Buffett, and, and we're putting the burner in and out while on the tanker. So oh. it was, um, uh, and the tanker tow line, I remember I was flying with my navigator called Dave Catterson who left the Air Force shortly after that. He got, um, and uh, the, because of the turbulence, the, um, the, uh, the hose pipe coming out of the back of the Victor was just whipping up and down um, like somebody with a... Um, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, okay, with, with, a, with, uh, you know, with a whip. And, um, you know, you sort of see the films with people with beads of sweat coming off their forehead and stuff like that, chewing chewing gum. Well, I wasn't chewing chewing gum, but I'm sure I had those beads of sweat. And my navigators, they're fairly helpless in the back there, except give you words of encouragement saying, go on, Rich, you can do it, you can do it. And it was a question of um, the air to air fueling technique on the tornado. You would never try and chase the basket because it used to hit the bow wave and it, you never get, get close to it. You had to sort of stand back 
and just drive in. And with the hose going up and down, you just pick a moment, give it a go, drive in, it would miss, come back, give it a go. And I think, I think the, the biggest fear was actually not being able to get the fuel and then not be able to do what you'd asked to be done and then go home. And um, so, um, yeah, I think the pressure is on, not necessarily going to do the job, but or what if I went home because I didn't get the fuel on? People might say, hmm, that's a bit strange. Um, but after that, it got, things got even worse. Um, I, um, after you come off the tanker, um, you have enough fuel to do the mission. You let down as your, I think we were a seven ship or a six ship and uh you let down to low level during that process of letting down on the terrain falling radar there's quite a lot of talk between the front and back cockpit and um during the letdown i suddenly couldn't speak to dave my navigator and um this is quite a critical phase of flight because there's a lot of uh, checking backs and forwards on the terrain falling radar that it's all working correctly and um i i kind of had a big concern about well i can't speak to him now what are we going to do and then what i get when i get to the target how are we going to make all the switches live and, and talk between front and back there's quite a lot of coordination and um then i had at the back of my mind well i can't what can i possibly do i can't turn back because everyone will say i'm a wimp <laughs> um uh, so continue to let down let down to low level and, and it's never uh, and the obvious place is where your personal your plb connects into the seat there might be a bad connection tried that recycled that uh, this is a, this is a low level with the automatic pilot in, but uh, train falling radar, and um, and then all of a sudden I felt the you've got a mic tell lead that goes into the side of the helmet, and that had actually come loose. Now I, I checked it, and we've got comms back. But um, I hate to think of what had happened if I thought, well, I can't carry on with this, and turned back, and then got home and plugged it in, and thought, oh, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> so, Rich, um, how long did you spend on tornadoes, and did you enjoy your time? I, I owe everything in my life uh, in terms of flying to what the Air Force gave to me in terms of uh, training me. I, I think I would probably be a bit of a waster unless they'd taken hold of me, done, give me some officer training and then, uh, you know, taught me some flying skills. And um, uh, did a thou- I, I did about four, four and a half years on the tornado, a thousand hours uh, before I left. Um, one of the highlights before I left, because my father was in the Air Force, um, the boss uh, kindly said, yeah, you can take your dad flying. So um, that must have been cool. That, that was pretty cool. And um, he used to be based in Germany in the Hunter. So, yeah, we, we, we took off, took some bombs, you know, flew over the dams, went up to, um, I can't remember, one of the airfields he used to be based at, um, flying the Hunter up in uh, a Nordhorn, went to the Nordhorn Ranges, dropped some bombs, and then up to Vlihors did a GCA at one of the um, Dutch airfields where he used to be based and um, yeah that was a real thrill for both of us actually something you'll never forget <laughs> I'll never forget no well I, I really enjoyed aerobatics in the Air Force obviously you know we get taught to aerobatics University Air Squadron Hawk and uh, yeah I, we, they have small competitions as you go through training which I did okay in and um, then I, when I left the Air Force in '93, uh, um, went into commercial aviation, which is a different type of flying, um, equally as challenging. Um, and uh, about 10 years ago, I decided to get back into a bit of light aircraft flying. And it started with an Acrosport and then a Christian Eagle. And then I started to think, well, there's got to be more to it than this. Started doing aerobatics again. And then joined the British Aerobatic Association to do some uh, competition aerobatics. 
at um, standard, uh, intermediate, and briefly at advanced, because the biplane or Christian Eagle wasn't uh, well suited to. It can't do unlimited aerobatics or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really enjoyed the, the time with the British Aerobatic Association and the skills it helped me develop. And it really put, um, although I, I had a fair bit of discipline in my flying anyway from my background, but into doing aerobatics, it put some discipline into. Uh, going out, flying a fixed routine, uh, coming down, being told you're rubbish by the judges, and then going have another go. But it's, it's great, ex- great experience, and um, I, I used it as a bit of a stepping stone into getting my dis- display authorization and um, starting to try and um, develop air shows uh, with the biplane. Now I had, we had a Christian Eagle, and I did a small bit of display flying um, with the Christian Eagle, which is an amazing aeroplane. Um, but I happened to be in America watching um, an air show in America. I saw um, a guy flying one of these biplanes and he was doing some unbelievable aerobatics with it. And I thought, wow, how, how is that possible? Um, yeah, I've got to have a go at this. And subsequently found out that it's, yeah, you, you, you've got to have an aeroplane with a big engine, a powerful engine. Uh, and that's quite big enough to see at air shows and I looked at it modifying the Christian Eagle putting six cylinder engines in it and then I, uh, I I've been building another aeroplane for quite a while so I knew a bit about the light aviation uh, authority and um, then I started to understand you can't just bolt things on to aeroplanes like they can in America I mean the things they do in America are obviously very very safe and well thought through but you don't have to prove any on paper uh, prove any of it on paper you can go and do it and if it works you can fly it and um, so then I uh, thought well I need to try and I thought about building an airplane from scratch uh, in order to with a big engine a biplane in particular Um, this looked like a pretty bit of a challenge in terms of its um, the documentation involved and um, so then I switched my focus into buying a home-built biplane which we could we could modify and that's when I bought the Pitts S2S um, they only built about 30 anyway and not many of them were home built or experimental and uh, in terms of in order to produce a great airshow aircraft um, an airshow aerobatics is very different to competition aerobatics um, it's more you know w- w- what people want to see I suppose or what, what, what looks unusual and um, strange in the air and um, in order to get booked at airshows so um, I, I remortgaged the house, bought this plane. My wife wasn't particularly happy with me at the time. <laughs> I think she actually burst into tears when I told her. Um, but sometimes, you know, you only, you only live once and you, you've got to do these things. And so I thought, um, I guess I, I got, had that uh, small nagging at the back of my mind, having done the Air Force bit and uh, done the commercial airline bit. Um, my father was in the Air Force he displayed the Hunter and Lightning and I thought well I wouldn't mind doing the air show bit and uh, I guess that's where it started Um, so remortgaged the house bought the plane and then subsequently uh, took it all apart and had to start uh, from scratch with uh, negotiating with the Light Aviation Authority uh, in in terms of the changes we might make to the airplane in order to make it uh, a a great air show performer and it's not new stuff it's all stuff that's been done in america and um, you know obviously i had to look towards america for help and um, got a great uh, design engineer called eddie salmon 
who helps other airshow pilots in America develop their aircraft, improve their aircraft, make them more predictable, make them more spectacular, but in a very safe way. So how do you go about creating a display sequence? Um, I, I know the sort of manoeuvres my aeroplane is capable of, and I've been told by other people which ones look more interesting. So I try and... I mean, some manoeuvres are actually quite difficult, but don't look that spectacular to um, you know, someone standing on the yeah. ground. So I've, I, try, I try and now fly the easiest manoeuvres because it gives you a lot more spare brain cells to worry about positioning of the aeroplane because weather actually and wind uh, affects quite a lot the positioning of the aircraft. And if you can keep it tight and really close in front of the display audience consistently, um, they'll enjoy it a lot more. Um, so I know what manoeuvres it's capable of. I mean, in my aeroplane, you know, I, I, you look at what other people fly in America um, and they've got... They've been doing it for 20 or 30 years longer than me in these, what we might call a muscle biplane. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would be silly not for me for me not to look at what those guys are doing because uh, they've they've had a lot more experience at it. And in, in terms of developing the aeroplane as well, the difficulty in this country is um, getting it through the red tape and the hoops. Um, so they've got a 20, 30 year head start and. Uh, I look at the manoeuvres that are enjoyable to the, the public and then just try and link them all up. But, but I'll, I'll only change the routine by maybe three or four manoeuvres each year because um, at the end of the day, I can go and ask people at air shows, are uh, you getting bored with my display yet? And um, no one really knows you flying the same thing all the time. I always fly and fl try and fly the same, uh, roughly the same routine because... I, I know it very, very well, and I can think then about the other aspects of uh, flying yeah. uh, when maybe things either go slightly wrong or uh, you're having to work hard to keep your position. Yeah. So, do you have to differ your routine for each airshow site? Um, I, I, I know I, I'll differ the the beginning and the end, and it depends a lot on the uh, prevailing wind and the takeoff direction, and also whether I'm actually taking off at the airshow or not. If the weather's nice and it's a beautiful blue sky um, and it's not at an airfield, uh, then I would do a high start, which is like a 13-turn spin from a loop, it, purely because it, it, it produces a fantastic image in the sky, the white smoke spiraling down against the blue sky. Um, if I'm flying from an airfield, I always display from takeoff because the aeroplane has the capability and it's normally into uh, some sort of... Uh, high alpha knife edge manoeuvre which um, has taken me a long time to get authorised by the CAA a lot of people say that's illegal but actually it's on my display licence and um, but it but but uh, it's been risk assessed and the aeroplane has been built and designed to be capable of it so yeah. it's not it, it looks risky but it's it, it's not risky at all um, but that's what we do with airship flying try and make um the impossible look easy or is it the other way around no. <laughs> so how often do you get to practice your display um, once the air show season starts uh, that's it I'm pretty every every show is a, a practice but I'll start uh, we'll get the annual on the aeroplane done and put it all apart and have it all back together for sort of March April and then um, you know I spend a fairly intense month uh, at Gloucester Airport 
and I should mention them here because they are fantastic. Um, they've got a Rule 5 exemption and um, they allow me to practice in the overhead. Um, and I start whatever sequence I'm going to fly up at a thousand feet and then work it down again. Now, after having had a, a winter break, it's amazing actually. I go up and do some gyroscopic maneuvers or spinning type maneuvers and it makes me feel really ill. So, for those of you that are airsick, you, you will get used to it. it. It only takes maybe three or four flights and then you get your, um, your tolerance levels back yeah. uh, to G and to, I suppose, feeling airsick. So, so do you have a favourite manoeuvre you uh, perform? Um, I, I suppose I, I quite like the Tower of Power because it's uh, a bit unpredictable. And um, that manoeuvre, yeah, you, you run in very high speed, you put up in front of the crowd, do a three-quarter roll, and then a sort of a negative tumble or snap roll and try and stop it in the vertical. And then we go into what's called a torque roll, um, which, so try and leave a big pile of smoke and then turn the smoke off and do a torque roll. And it won't fly backwards, but it does go backwards a long way, this aeroplane, particularly if you get it right. Now, it's a bit unpredictable, probably because I'm not skillful enough to get it right every time, but normally it looks, it looks quite impressive anyway. And if you get a torque roll right, it really, it really does look impressive with the aeroplane actually coming backwards. Yeah. Um, so I'd say probably 50% success rate on that. Yeah. Can you remember your first airshore display? Um, yeah, it, the, the only reason I got into it, it, it wasn't just because I wanted to do it, but the local village show knew I had a biplane. They said, oh, come, can you come and do a display? And I thought... I, I never really, I didn't know that you had to have a display authorization or anything. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that. And then I looked into it in a bit more detail and realized actually there's quite a lot of, you know, you have to have a display authorization, this, uh, all sorts of other stuff. And I thought, um, oh, well, I'll, I'll never be able to do that. It all looks too complicated and difficult. And I went to a seminar in London and it, um, it became apparent actually, well, no, it wouldn't, it, it, it's not impossible. It is achievable. Um, you just need to apply yourself to it. And I hadn't really applied myself to anything flying orientated for quite a while in terms of getting qualifications or requalified. And um, the colleague I went with said, that doesn't sound that difficult. We can do that. And so I, I, that, that's basically uh, where the process started. And I got my first display authorization uh, with, in fact, a guy you might have heard of called Barry Tempest. Um, and um, there is a connection that goes quite a long way back because my father used to display the Hunter at uh, Little Rissington uh, a long time ago. Barry started his flying career um, working in the hangar and then flying gliders. And uh, my father and Barry got together and they came up with a, a double act where my father would fly the Hunter and Barry would fly the glider. And they called it Sound and Silence. So... It's nice to sort of see a completed circle, I suppose. Um, you know, my dad got Barry into display flying and his display flying career, and then um, Barry started me off with uh, doing my display authorization. And so, yeah. So, how long does the workup take from training in the cockpit to your first airshow? Um, in, in the first year, uh, or first couple of years, it, um, how long's a piece of string? <laughs> This year, this year, I probably spent um, at least ten um, flights practicing some new things I wanted to do, 
uh, get, getting reacclimatized, and then I'd spend at least maybe eight, eight, eight full run-throughs of my display. Um, and depending on the weather, I wouldn't want to do more than um, you know one or two flights a day. Um, but yeah, I'm I, I'm keen to sort of introduce new new elements to it uh, each year. So I'll look at see what other people are doing around the houses. Um, I know what my airplane does well, and really, um, yeah, just expand upon that. I'll try and make it more interesting next year. Um, but it, it, yeah, you have to be well rehearsed and practiced before the first display of the season. Yeah. And in fact, the first display this year, I think, was Abingdon. I actually went to site and rehearsed on site because uh, the, one of the problems is you can go and practice over a railway line, but you can't go below you know certain heights you can it's nothing like actually practicing at 200 feet um um over a runway where there's a crowd line uh, and and um operating to 150 meters or 230 meters so um yeah so rich what's it like to actually fly um i i guess i'm the only one that knows what it's like to fly and alan cassidy who does some of the test line for me but um it, it's a it's a beautiful airplane to fly it's incredibly forgiving and i'm very spoiled because we've got a lot of power um i have to be careful we've got access to pits s2b which is a two-seat version and it, this airplane is very different to the other one so i might go and fly the two-seat version try and do some very a very a variety of maneuvers but but the maneuvers are not possible in a two-seat version uh, whereas in this one they are so and um, in terms of recovering it from unusual attitudes um, uh, in the gyroscopic manoeuvres, it, it, it recovers very precisely, very predictably, and um, partly that's because there's a lot of power. Um, so I wouldn't be trying these sort of manoeuvres in an aeroplane with less power. Yeah. Um, you can fly it uh, very, very high alpha on the stall, um, mostly with thrust and um, with obviously the wing virtually stalled it's uh, very it's pretty controllable um, I generally restrict that sort of flight to about 800 feet in case the engine does stop people may wonder why I'm so high when um, we're flying it in that attitude but if the engine stops you need uh, about 800 feet to recover um, yeah don't be put off by any stories you hear about pit specials other than landing them <laughs> But I, I, I've got used to landing them now, so it's, you, you don't relax till you turn the engine off in the pits. <laughs> so what's it like to maintain? Um, well, I do all the maintenance myself. I do have some guys that help me occasionally, uh, particularly um, if, you know, if we need to re- recover any components or if I need to do any welding. I've got a certified welder that helps me, but it's a pretty basic aeroplane. You've got an engine... Uh, an altimeter, airspeed indicator, an engine instruments, and a stick, and a rudder, obviously. So (laughs) it's fairly basic, and that's the beauty of the pits. Um, Some of the components can be quite expensive, particularly when you start modifying engines. Um, But in terms of maintaining it, um, because we're at air shows, and, um, you know, safety is always at the back of my mind, um, in terms of, it's not just reliability, but in terms of the structural integrity of the aeroplane. So I, it, it's not like a complex jet, 
but but we do everything possible um, to make it as safe as possible and the engine as reliable as possible. So I analyse when we change the oil every 25 hours. It goes off for analysis in America. Um, I've got um, the engine is um, monitored by a state-of-the-art microprocessor, and so we monitor all aspects of the, the engine, and I can look at that on a computer if necessary. Um, it's got a, a very good uh, oil cooling system and a very good um, oil pickup system. So people see the airplane flying on its side and think, oh, it must be starving it of oil, but it, actually in the oil sump, it's got a swing arm, a bit like a, a flock tube in a fuel tank, uh, to make sure that we always have oil supply to the engine. And um, the, the prop um, is uh, MT supply the prop. They help me with the propeller and it's serviced every two years um, because we are giving it quite a lot of abuse. Um, but then it was designed to be used like that. So maintaining it, really, its annual is look, at, look for the cracks, inspect it very closely, uh, do all the normal stuff on the engine, and um, we, yeah, wheels, wheels and brakes. Yeah. <laughs> and the airplane is as simple as that. Yeah. And, so, do you have any memorable um, airshow displays? One that sticks out? Particularly this year. Um, it, well, the, the, it, it's really nice to be invited to them all, and I feel very honoured to be invited. Um, I think last year, it was, I couldn't believe it when Farmer said, oh, could you come and display? Yeah. And uh, that was a real, a real highlight, and we did it with some pyrotechnics. And um, it was great to be part of, uh, you know, you know, one of the biggest air shows in the world. Yeah. Um, this year, I love going to the military shows because, um, I, uh, well, all air shows I love going to, particularly those air shows that um, encourage um, our younger generation into aviation, and, and that, that's a very big part of air shows. I think now um, is the science, technology, education, maths, and getting our you know, seven, eight, nine-year-olds interested in aviation yeah. and all aspects of aviation. Um, it, it, it can provide a great career. Uh, it, it provides great industry. And I think it's something that we're very strong on in the United Kingdom is air shows. And we, used to, we need to use that uh, to lever as many people as possible into those industries, um, particularly now we're leaving the EU, so we can really stand on our own feet uh, in the aerospace world. So I'm, I'm particularly keen on those air shows that really support that. And um, But if I was to pick a couple of air shows, military air shows, Scampton, it's great to be invited to Scampton. I suppose it was based Waddington. And I suppose Sanicol is my first official international air show. And they really, uh, they really knew how to entertain uh, a crowd. They had a fantastic social event. And also I think it was probably because it was one of the last displays of the season I flew. The weather was nice. A very, very strong on-crowd wind. Very, very challenging. I was very paranoid about busting any limits to my first international show. Um, but I, I felt, after all the air shows I'd done this summer, that um, that was probably one of the better displays I flew. Um, I've always tried quite critical. No one else really knows what I do well or badly. Um, but um, I, I, I think that's... Um, that, that should have looked okay and it's really nice at the end to have um, uh, the organiser come up to me who's been in air shows for 40 years and runs the European Air Show Council um, 
uh, and shook my hand and said, great display, Rich. Uh, that really meant a lot yeah, to me. Yeah. yeah. So I hope to go back one day. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm going to give you a quick tour of the aeroplane now. Most of the flown pits will probably recognise a lot of the features because it is pretty much a standard pit with a few sort of bolt-on hot rod parts. So I don't know if you can see in the cockpit, but it's pretty basic. Um, I did rewire it and uh, rebuild the instrument panel. But one of the most important things I have is a small ICAS or engine monitoring system. Um, it's uh, provided by JPI, but it monitors every aspect of the engine. Um, uh, all six CGTs, CHTs, oil pressure, fuel pressure, uh, manifold air pressure, everything. And it can all be downloaded from a memory stick onto the computer so I can look at what's going on should I have any issues. Um, the rest of it is just a basic VFR uh, instrumentation setup, although I do have some little stick-on uh, AHARs, although it's uh, not, not IFR approved uh, in case we get stuck above cloud or need to penetrate cloud. It's quite a small cockpit. Um, I'm just going to turn the power off. Um, so the fuel system is quite different. It has two fuel tanks, um, but we only use one of them for display. Um, but it ha has a separate header tank, so I can display this aeroplane unlimited aerobatics down to 10 litres of fuel. Um, so consequently, well, it's got a big fuel tank, but I only ever display um, or start my display with maybe 30 or 40 litres of fuel, uh, which keeps the weight down, and it's all about weight and power. Um, I think you can just see, yeah, anyway, don't worry too much. Don't worry too much about that. Um, I'll shut the canopy, set the rain. Okay, moving forward at the moment, I've got a, stand, a, sta a standard um, Pitts S2S or S2B wings on with symmetrical aerons. We've got a standard aerobatic site, which I can't do without. And um, moving forward, we have... Um, a very different uh, cowling, um, which uh, is, is two half uh, carbon cowling, and um, it, there's a lot less profile drag on this cowling, and it cools incredibly well, um, the six cylinder engine that's inside there. We've got uh, two oil coolers, uh, one at the back, and one mounted on the front um, uh, baffle. And um, it's got a, a Skydynamics air induction system, uh, cold air induction sump which has got the swing arm oil pickup so when we do knife edge maneuvers we have continuous oil supply um, it's got an FLA performance fuel injection unit which is much bigger than standard sort of thing they use on the Red Bull Air Race aircraft and um, with the modifications electronic ignition on the engine uh, it, it produces around about 300 horsepower which the original stock engine is about 260 horsepower um, the undercarriage, the standard, the standard pits undercarriage has been removed and the gear legs are titanium rod uh, mounted on the um, engine mount, uh, which all has to be approved by the Light Aviation Authority. Um, we've got an amazing propeller um, designed by MT Props. It's a wide-cored aerobatic blade and um, it produces an amazing amount of thrust uh, with the 300 horsepower engine. It's the same, same prop as they have on the extra 300 SCs. We've got a six into one exhaust, um, which helps with the breathing of the engine and the mass, the volumetric flow rate through the engine in terms of producing the extra power. Um, 
The S2S fuselage, just out of interest, is about seven or eight inches shorter than the standard S2B or S2A fuselage. And with the bigger engine and only one cockpit, it puts the center of gravity in, in just the right spot for some of those um, gyroscopic maneuvers that the airplane is so good at. Um, moving around to the back of the airplane, we've got a modified rudder. So as you can see, it's a lot bigger than the original and we've also chopped off the top of the fin, welded it along here uh, to give it an aerodynamic balance. Now, I've got a new elevator, which comes out to about here, which is much bigger. And we test flew it at the end of last summer. Um, unfortunately, we had a few flutter issues with that at the VNE test. So while I've been uh, working, uh, sorry, displaying over the summer, we haven't had it on the aeroplane and um, it's now modified and ready to test again. So we'll be trying to put the different enhanced uh, tailplane on. But the new aeroplane I'm building um, has got um, the most amazing wings, uh, only the second set flying in the world when they do fly. Uh, similar in structure, but very different shape. And the aileron is a very different design. Um, so that'll be on the new fuselage, which is nearing completion. Um, It'll have the same rudder, same gear. Um, the engine will be more powerful because we've got a, an aftermarket um, we're using AX50 cylinders. So uh, hopefully we should get a, about 330 horsepower out of the engine, which all adds to the fun of it. Uh, it's also, the, the new fuselage has got a nice, really nice side, side hinged canopy um, with uh, a carbon front combing as well. Um, you can see I've got various uh, logos on the aeroplane and obviously this has been one of the biggest challenges. Uh, funding all this is, is not cheap and generally uh, revenue from air shows doesn't cover it. Um, but I'm really pleased to say that my main sponsor, Anana, a software company um, who designed, developed uh, call centre technology and systems for uh, several large uh, brands, uh, popular brands in the, in the United Kingdom, they've been incredibly supportive and um, they, they really love the aeroplane, they love the images that all those photographers take and, and once again I, I'm really thankful for the great photographers that we have at these air shows, they're real, a really big part of the process. I, 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 offered, I, I don't give much to them because I don't have much to give but occasionally we give out some t-shirts and, and things like this really just as a way of saying thank you very much because uh, they're all part of the process of uh, trying to keep us running and keep the sponsors on board and um, you know keep different acts coming to the air show industry um, recently uh, Bremont watches and, and Bose have contributed with rocket route Transair. They, they all help me in, in some way shape or form plus also the, the people that make some of the products on the aircraft whether it be Skytech the starter JPI producing, you know, providing uh, some instrumentation for the engine. Um, it's been a real, the whole, you know, five or six years uh, being involved in the airshow industry and trying to get help from various manufacturers. It's been a real um, enlightening experience for me. It's one that I've really enjoyed, one that's been uh, a lot of hard work. Um, but, but I enjoy it. I love the, the, the building and really looking forward to this winter, hopefully getting the next aircraft finished. And um, the colour scheme on that aircraft, we've got uh, lots of ideas, but Mirko Pecorari of Aircraft Studio Design, who's a top Italian designer, he designed this amazing paint scheme on here. Um, he'll be designing the next scheme. 
and um, yeah we hope it's going to be something exciting for you guys to see next season and then when we hopefully get the jet engines on it um, if, if that ever happens um, yeah something else to look forward to so Rich do you have any hobbies? Um, I almost have too many hobbies <laughs> obviously my wife is one of my hobbies and without the good support of my wife uh, none of this would be possible so I'd like to thank Sarah um, I like to keep fit, run. I used to kite surf, ski, some sort of adrenaline type sports. Um, but I'm getting quite old now and I think I'm just going to focus on this one, get the jet pits going. Um, I'd really like to thank the people that have supported me in terms of uh, sponsorship, particularly this year, uh, Chris and Rog. Uh, what an amazing company, company to be involved with. And I'm um, looking forward to their Christmas party because that's something special as well. <laughs> So is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown? I think I wish I could have flown the Lightning, purely for sort of family reasons. Um, my father became quite famous in that world, and um, uh, it would have been great if I'd been slightly younger. Maybe I'd have got through onto the Operation Conversion Unit for the Lightning, but unfortunately it finished uh, by the time I went through the training system. But to sit on those two uh, Avon jet engines, <laughs> little tiny copy on top, I, I guess I've got the, you know, the private version here. <laughs> so where can we find you online? Online? Um, uh, it's uh, uh, Um We try and keep the website updated. I must thank Donna, who does the website, and a lot of my multimedia, um, to try and keep the, spo the sponsors exposed and uh, keep, keep everyone up to date with what's going on on the development of the next aircraft and finally do you ever get sick of talking about aviation i don't actually talk about it that much other than when someone like yourself uh, comes along um uh yeah I, I like to do other things and winter at the time i i love the building of the airplane as well and that's a big part of it for me as and i wish i in many respects got involved in this sort of thing um, you know many many years ago but it just goes to show I'm not going to tell you how old I am but really I only got into this seriously you know five or six years ago in terms of building developing aeroplanes I've learned so much I've had uh, so much help from Eddie in America and um, a lot of other guys in America and um, I wish some of that help was more um, accessible here in the United Kingdom but maybe uh, maybe it will, do, it will do one day uh, become <laughs> more accessible. Well, thanks very much for being on the show. Yeah, no problem. And uh, thank you for taking the time to come down. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.